0: Well, we, uh, for the last few weeks, have been in a sermon series called Differences and Division. And we've been asking this question of, do our differences have to lead to our division? Um, I don't think it's any secret that there's an awful lot of difference that uh, exists in our world right now, within our nation, and even within our denomination, and perhaps even right here within these four walls, right? And so, um, rather than ignoring this reality... um, sometimes it's better just to acknowledge the elephant in the room, right? And so um, we've been wrestling with this idea of, like, do our differences have to lead to our division? And we've turned to some passages in the New Testament where difference has been a reality, and there has been this, uh, um, an, an opening, perhaps, because of this difference to lead to division. And we've been asking, like, is there perhaps a better way for the body of Christ rather than this impulse to divide every time we have difference? And so... Um we come to the end of this series, uh which I know everybody's sad because this has been such a good, lighthearted uh sort of series for us to work through. Um but I I hope it's been helpful for us, again, recognizing like the particular thing that we're dealing with uh at this season, but hopefully like beyond that, right? Um and I think that's one of the, the gifts of scripture is that um it continues to speak and and continues to uh, speak into the realities of the challenges that that we face in in our lives. So, as we uh, get ready to jump into uh, our last week, uh, would you join me in a word of prayer? Loving God, we are grateful um, for the gift of this community and the the chance to be together. Um, God, we're grateful for. Um, all of the individual lives that are here in this community that together um, make something um, incredibly sacred. God, we're, we're grateful for that gift, and we're grateful for the, the gift to be able to be part of that community. And God, as we uh, turn now to the scriptures, we acknowledge the gift that is your spirit here among us, and we yield ourselves to your spirit as we begin to wrestle with the scriptures and ask that your spirit would lead us, guide us, shape us, and form us more and more into the image of Jesus. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. A priest, a rabbi, and an imam walk into a bar, and you know exactly where this is going, right? It's a joke, right? And this has become like a, a common starter to many different jokes, right? And on one hand, like it's, it's funny, right? Because like to imagine a priest, a rabbi, and an imam or any other host of diverse religious leaders walking into a bar together, is pretty funny, right? Because there's an awful lot of diversity among thought and perspective and viewpoints among that group. And to imagine them sitting down and enjoying a brew together is kind of funny, right? But on the other hand, it's also kind of sad that like we've gotten to a place where like, this becomes a common quip to begin a joke, right? Like, it, it, it's such an outrageous idea that these three diverse individuals could come and sit down at a bar, a place where you gather with friends to enjoy a beverage together, right? It's funny on one hand, but it's sad on the other hand. And we could fill in... Uh, a whole host of other categories besides just these religious leaders, right? And the, the joke would still be funny. We could say a Democrat and a Republican walked into a bar, and we'd be like, Haha, well, that's never going to happen. Or we could say um, a fundamentalist and a progressive walked into a bar, and we can go, Haha, well, that's never going to happen. Or we could even say a Notre Dame fan and an Ohio State fan walk into a bar, and we would say, "Ha ha, that's never going to happen. <laughs> By the way, they, start their se- they open up their season versus one another in September, which is the real reason why I'm going on sabbatical. Um. <laughs> 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 but, oh, wow. Some differences that might lead to some division here, I think. Um. But is it such uh, an unlikely, such a... Um, um, an unimaginable uh, thing for people who are so radically different from one another to spend time together? Um, Is it such an outrageous claim that uh, it's become a common quip uh, to begin a joke with? And is it like such an outrageous idea that even within the body of Christ, that we have something like 45,000 different denominations across the world to compensate for this impulse within us? And so as we find ourselves in this last week of the series of differences and division, um, I want us to turn and look specifically at like, um, the initial community of Jesus, his disciples, as we continue to wrestle with this idea of do our differences have to lead to our division? So in Matthew chapter 10, we read this. <clears throat> Then Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to cure every disease and every sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, also known as Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Uh, Then we read this also in Luke chapter 6. Now during those days he went out to the mountain to pray. He meaning Jesus, and he spent the night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose twelve of them, whom he also named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and his brother Andrew, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called a Zealot, and Judas son of Simon, er, son, of, and Judas son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, I don't know about you, but when uh, I read long lists of names in the Bible, I'll let you in on a secret. Sometimes I just skip over them. <laughs> because at surface level, like they don't actually mean a whole lot, right? Now, These names often do mean something really important, right? Like, so specifically, like in the Old Testament, we'll see long lists of genealogies, right? And the intention of these long lists of genealogies is to connect, oftentimes, like the person, the main character of a story, to connect them back to someone of significance way, way back. And this is either to, like, uh, give credibility to this person, to say, like, this person is who they should be. Or it's to like, let us in on a secret. Like This unexpected character is connected to this influential person in the past, and what's going to happen in the story is very, very surprising. So genealogies are actually important. Now, this particular listing of names are, is not a genealogy, but these are something like 12 random uh, individuals that have been gathered together. So what, what's happening here? More so, like we see this uh, passage happening in Matthew. We see something similar happening in Mark, and we see the same thing happening in Luke. So it seems important enough that all three of our synoptic gospels list out these 12 seemingly random individuals. So what's happening here? Well, to figure out what's happening here, I think we have to go back almost all the way back to the beginning of scripture with uh, a nation that God begins to form, which is called Israel. Israel begins to be this this nation among many other nations, but this nation's unique because they begin to be not just any old nation, but they begin to be the people of God. God enters into a unique sort of sacred, sort of holy relationship with the people with this hope of it becoming like this sort of reciprocal, mutual sort of relationship. And Israel, as they become the people of God, are divided into these 12 tribes. Think of like a big family reunion when they all get together, right? Now, if we read the rest of our Old Testament, we see a, a story of how this, this project has, like, ebbed and flowed, right? This experiment had its incredible highs of faithfulness from the people of God towards God, but it also had, like, immense lows from the people of God towards God. This this varying story of incredible highs of faithfulness and incredible lows of unfaithfulness. So we fast forward through this very, 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 very long story, and we get to the time of Jesus, and Jesus, towards the beginning of his ministry, begins to form this group of his disciples, these students, these apprentices, if you will, these, these, this group of individuals that will follow Jesus and learn from him. Now, this group of disciples were 12, you guessed it, Jewish men. And it seems as though what Jesus is doing here is picking up this very old story of the people of God and entering into something that we might call like the renewed people of God. It's the same story, the same sort of premise, but perhaps maybe a new chapter in it. Uh, and so when we think about like the people of God, uh, the, the first project that God entered into, God began with Israel. And the hope of all of this was that Israel would eventually become a blessing to all nations, that they would be an example to the rest of the nations around the world of what it means to be in this sort of unique relationship with God, what it means to be part of the people of God, what it means for us to like live into the fulfillment of what God has called us to be, what it means to be fully human, if you will. This was always meant to be the trajectory of the, the initial project of the people of God. And so when we come to Jesus and this this new chapter in this renewed people of God, we see that the same sort of impulse is there. That this, this group that he begins with, the symbolic nod to the, the original Israel, is always meant to like, exist beyond themselves to exist for something beyond themselves that that through this tw- this 12 renewed people of God that that God would continue to expand beyond things like ethnicity beyond nationality beyond socioeconomic status beyond like even gender and all of these different ways of dividing ourselves right like this was always the intent of it we see this uh, for example at the end of Matthew's gospel when Jesus tells them to To um, go into Jerusalem, the small circle, into Judea, bigger circle, Samaria, expanding it in all of the world, right? This this movement was meant to go into all of the world. Or as we see in Acts chapter 15, the the Jewish followers of Jesus are coming into this reality that there are non-Jewish followers of Jesus, and what are they going to do with it? They decide to open the doors to all people. And so the, the intent of the, the people of God and now the renewed people of God was always to be to all of the world and to all people. But before we get to this vast, all-encompassing sort of vision for the renewed people of God, we begin really, really small <laughs> with 12. Now, as we look at the, the 12 that were listed, there are two characters that are particularly Intriguing, especially as we think about the two of them being together. So Matthew uses this description of one of the disciples of Matthew being a tax collector. But Luke tells us another detail about another disciple and that he was Simon the Zealot. Now, here's what we know about these uh, two particular uh, roles. So Matthew, the tax collector. So uh, during Jesus's day, Israel had been uh, occupied by their uh, foreign neighbor, the the neighbor who's biggest and the baddest, the, the world superpower of the day in Rome. And Rome stepped in and put their knee on the neck of Israel to the point that they were crying out, we can't breathe. And, and one of the ways that like, Israel wasn't able to breathe was because of these debilitating sort of taxes that uh, Rome put on them. And because Rome had like, mastered what it meant to be the big bad uh, neighbor and the world superpower of the day, they got to the point that they didn't even have to do their own dirty work. And so what they did was they summoned Jewish individuals to begin to impose their, Rome's tax on their fellow Jewish uh, neighbors. But here was the deal that was worked up. Tax collectors could uh, collect however much money they wanted (laughs) and then shave off uh, uh, the top part of it, put it in their pockets, and give the rest to Rome. So if Rome was charging somebody 50 bucks, a tax collector could charge them 75 bucks, tuck the $25 in their pockets, and give the 50 on to Rome. So, like, pretty slimy individuals here, right? But if we try and think about them in, like, the best sort of light, which is, you know sometimes harder to do for some individuals than others. Like, it seems as though what they're trying to do is like in some ways maintain or keep peace with Rome, right? Like, if they don't do it, who knows who they'll get to collect the taxes and they may not be as friendly as we are, right? But in their worst light, they are slimy corrupt individuals, right? (laughs) As you're interacting with them, it feels like you're interacting with used car salesmen. You're like, I feel like you're just out to get me, right? Like, these were people who were making a profit off of like, Uh, taking advantage of their own ethnic people. That's Matthew the tax collector. Simon the Zealot. Here's what one source tells us about the Zealots. You might notice some stark contrast here. The Zealots were an aggressive political party whose concern for the national and religious life of the Jewish people led them to despise even Jews who sought peace and conciliation with the Roman authorities. So here we have an aggressive political party of Jewish people who were aggressive and even violent towards uh, their fellow Jews who saw any sort of, like, connection with Rome. Even if these were, like, wholesome connections with Rome, right? So again, if we think about the zealots in, like, the best sort of light, like, we see them as, like, pursuing some sort of liberation for their people, right? There, there's, there's, there's something good about this impulse, But if we see them in their worst light, like they were straight up terrorists. (laughs) Like they led all sorts of violent insurrections, and it wasn't even against Rome, but it was even against like their fellow Jew who may or uh, who, uh, who in some ways conspired with Rome. So we have Matthew the tax collector, this conspirator with Rome, and we have Simon the zealot, who is like this violent insurrectionist against anything or anyone who uh, conspires with Rome. And we have them as part of the initial 12 of Jesus. Do you think they got along very well? (laughs) Probably not, right? There were probably some awkward bonfires late at night as they were discussing uh, their vocations in life, right? But even more than that, like, we can imagine, like, as they're walking from village to village, like, Jesus leading the way, and probably Simon way over here, and probably Matthew over here for fear of his life, right? Like, (laughs) was he afraid that Simon was going to kill him at any point? Was Simon just so incredibly cynical towards Matthew's presence among them that he just couldn't stand it? Like, you can imagine, you can feel the tension within this, because everything within Simon wants to do away with Matthew, and everything within Matthew is terrified of Simon. So Why? (laughs) Why did Jesus invite these two diametrically opposed individuals to be part of this initial community that's gathered around the life and the teachings of Jesus? I think it all comes back to this image of this idea of the renewed people of God. See, when we talk about a renewed people of God, we're talking about a reestablishing of the people of God. We're talking about beginning where they are and leading them into a better, bigger, more beautiful future. We're not talking about scrapping it, right? Like, this isn't a whole new story. This is a continuation of the story. It's a new chapter in the story. Think about, like, how we uh, renew or restore, like, beautiful pieces of art. If the Mona Lisa, for whatever reason, were to get all sorts of gunk on her, like, we wouldn't scrap it and start over. Like, that wouldn't be restoring it or renewing it, right? You'd bring in an expert craftsman who could, like, begin to, like, clean it up and heal it and bring it back to its original beauty. And this expert craftsman in this situation is Jesus. And so Jesus steps into this story and begins to try and reestablish, renew this people of God into a better, more beautiful future. But the way that he does this is before he leads them into this vast, all-encompassing vision of all the world and all people, he begins about as small as he can possibly get. He begins by uh, working with the ethnic people of God. And within the ethnic people of God, he gets as small as he possibly can within two individuals who uh, possess these diametrically opposed sectarian sorts of differences. It's the sense that like, you've got to begin with your own household before you can begin anything, anywhere else, right? Like if you were experiencing conflict in your family, would you come to me to have... To, to get some advice, if Allie and I came in every Sunday like biting each other's head off, right? <laughs> if you walk by throughout the week and our windows and doors are closed and you can still hear us screaming at each other, would you ask us for help on your conflict? No, because it's got to be lived out at home first within your family before it can bubble over and be experienced in other families. And so Jesus does the same sort of thing. He gets these 12 representatives of Israel and gets as small as he possibly can, two individuals that... Um, that carry the sectarian difference that exists among the ethnic people of God. And from there begins to cultivate something better, something bigger, something more beautiful with the hope that it begins to be the snowball effect, starting from this really small thing and then finally bubbling out into all the world and all people. So we ask this question, why? Why would Jesus include these two diametrically opposed individuals to be part of like the core group of this initial movement? And the longer that I sat with this question, why the, the more it led me to another question of like, could it be that Jesus was calling them out of their categories and inviting them into something more beautiful? For these disciples some 2,000 years ago, could it be that Jesus was calling them out of their categories, these sectarian differences that they had, and inviting them to step beyond that and walk into a future, a reality that was far more beautiful? And for us, Jesus' disciples, some 2,000 years later, I wonder if the question isn't the same. Could it be that Jesus is calling us out of our categories and inviting us into something more beautiful? See, we have all sorts of categories that lead to differences, right? And when it comes to these categories, we often find ourselves digging in our heels, trying to find some sort of identity, some sort of life, some sort of meaning, some sort of purpose out of them. These categories could be uh, preferential, like I like hymns and you like contemporary music with words on the screen, right? And We dig in our heels here, trying to find our identity from them to the point that like, these create difference among us and we can't even begin to talk about it. These categories can be political, right? Like, I'm a Democrat and you're a Republican, and we dig in our heels and we find our, try and find our identity from them, so much so that, like, my identity says that your identity is wrong and we can't even begin to talk about it. Or these could be ideological sorts of categories, right? Like, I'm a progressive and you're a conservative, and we try and find our identity, our meaning, our purpose, our life from these sorts of things. We dig in our heels to the point that, like, this is who I am, this is who you are, and you're wrong as a human being because of it, and we can't even talk about it, and I wonder if Jesus begins with these two diametrically opposed individuals, so that we have an example of how Jesus was calling somebody from their categories and inviting them into something more beautiful. Now, this isn't to say that these categories are um, insignificant, nor is it to say that these categories are like inherently evil, but it is to say that they're far too small. Like if we're turning to these categories with the hopes of finding some sort of identity, some sort of meaning, some sort of purpose, some sort of life in them, they have a really low ceiling. (laughs) But it seems as though what Jesus is doing is calling us out of these things and inviting us into a reality among the people of God where we can find those sorts of things like identity and meaning and purpose and belonging. And as we find ourselves stepping into the people of God, there isn't a ceiling that limits any sort of meaning or any sort of um, uh, understanding of life within that. But rather, that ceiling's been blown way off. And what we find as we step into the people of God, step into this something more beautiful that Jesus is inviting us into, is life upon life upon life upon life upon life, which is what Jesus describes as eternal life. So could it be, that Jesus, even 2,000 years later, is still calling us out of our categories and inviting us into something more beautiful. Now, I know some of us are really, really practical, and you're already asking the question of how. (laughs) Um, Maybe you're asking, how could they, the disciples 2,000 years ago, possibly figure this out? And how can we, the disciples today, possibly figure this out? Well, when it comes to the question of how could they, the disciples 2,000 years ago, possibly figure it out, I think this guy had something to do with it. <laughs> That's Jesus, by the way. Um, not Cousin Jesus that looks like me, but perhaps a more accurate Jesus. Um, we acknowledge that for the disciples 2,000 years ago, like they had Jesus, the presence of Jesus in their very midst, right? They walked with Jesus. They talked with Jesus. They listened to Jesus. Perhaps they even argued with Jesus. And as Jesus walked with them and journeyed with them, Jesus embodied this, uh, uh, this term that Jesus would use to describe himself of the good shepherd. And he met them where they were, and he journeyed with them like a good shepherd, leading them, guiding them, shaping them, forming them into a better, more beautiful reality. And we ask the question then, how can we possibly move forward in this? I think sometimes we've forgotten the reality that the presence of Jesus is still here in our midst. At the core of our Christian faith is this confession that Jesus lived, that Jesus taught, and that Jesus was brutally crucified. And yet he was raised to new life and that he is now our resurrected Lord and Savior and through his indwelling spirit is still here among us. And so while this may look different than the disciples 2,000 years ago, we still deal with the reality that the presence of Jesus is here in our midst. And could it be that this same good shepherd is continuing to try and shepherd us, lead us, guide us, shape us, form us into a better, more beautiful, bigger, more vast, more encompassing sort of future than these sectarian divides and these small categories uh, that we want to turn to for identity, purpose, meaning, belonging, and value. What would it look like for us to move forward with this conviction that this same Jesus finds himself here in our midst, moving us, calling us, inviting us out of our categories that are far too small, moving us into something far more beautiful? To say that our differences don't have to lead to our division um, is... That's a big thing, right? Like that, I'm not lost on that. Like I, I don't come at this ignorant thinking like, oh, we can just sweep them under the rug, it's no big deal. It's a big thing to talk about our differences not having to lead to our division. But the good news is is that we don't have to work out our differences by ourselves. But we have the reality of Jesus, the presence of Jesus here in our midst, being our good shepherd, leading us, guiding us, shaping us, forming us into something far more beautiful. But we have a role to play in that. Like we have a responsibility in all of that. And we have to ask ourselves, Like, are we, st- are we willing to stay at the table with one another? Are we willing to give Jesus a shot, to do something mysterious, to do something uh, mystical, to do something divine, to do something God-like, Christ-like among our midst? Are we willing to stay at the table with one another in spite of the differences that might exist between us? I hope so. And this is the question that we ask as we begin to turn towards Communion. Because when we come to communion, we bring all, all of ourselves, right? We bring all of our differences. We bring all of the, um, the categories that we have attempted to find our identity and meaning and purpose and belonging and value from. And when we come to the table, we hear Jesus inviting us to leave those categories behind because they're far too small. They're far too insignificant. And to step into a reality that is far more beautiful. And so to each and every one of us, Jesus extends the bread to us and extends the cup to us. But we have to ask ourselves, are we willing to come to the table of Jesus together? Uh, so uh, at this point, uh, Terry and Lois are going to lead us in singing uh, the song together um, that we've been singing for the last few weeks um, many ways, this has been a prayer for us and hopefully a a formational sort of prayer, a prayer that's shaped us as we think about what it means to be in difference with one another. And after that, um, I'll get back up and give us some instructions on how to move forward um, towards communion.